All right, so I want to take you back to college with me for just a minute, and actually Christmas break during college. There were many things I did during Christmas break, including work for Copeland Sports in San Luis Obispo. Some of you will remember them. And uh, I also had a tradition with my friend Frank. Every year, we would go to Six Flags Magic Mountain just a few days before Christmas. And we did this because it was absolutely the best time to go because there was nobody there. So I remember they've added so many rides since back then. But back then, Viper was a big deal. The, the roller coaster, and we would get on the roller coaster many times, and we'd ride it, we'd get back into the loading area, see nobody in line, and just go again, and again, and again, and we, I mean, we had headaches, and we felt dizzy, and we finally said, okay, it's time to get off, and then the same thing happened on the Batman ride, too, where we could just keep going over and over again, so we did this every year. I've been on a lot of roller coasters. Um, when then, then for 15 years, I was a youth pastor after college. And during that time, we went to theme parks at least once a year. And so I had, again, I have been on a lot of roller coasters, or at least I thought I had until I read about this. Several years back, an Ohio man was honored by Kings Island theme park in Cincinnati for his 1,000th visit to the park. In 1980, park officials started noticing that this guy was coming around a lot, and so they just started counting over 20 years how many times they saw him and and what he did. And in just over 20 years, he took 19,000 rides on roller coasters and spent a total of 8,000 hours at the park. At first glance, you look at what this guy did, and you said, well, that's not that hard to do. All you got to do is show up at a theme park and go on as many rides as you can, as often as you can. But when you really think about it, that took a ton of commitment, didn't it? I mean, to, to show up at the park day after day, if you've ever had to wait in line for a roller coaster before, you know how much patience that takes. And he did that day after day. And he also had to say no to some life experiences so that he could keep saying yes to the same one over and over again. It took commitment. If I met this man, my first question would be, Why? What motivates you to do this day after day? Is it the thrill of the ride? Do you like being around the people? Are you doing some sort of research? Why do you want to do this? What motivates you? Well, when it comes to the Christian faith, there is a similar question that can be asked. Why? What motivates some people to live for Christ day after day, year after year? At first glance, faith in Christ looks pretty simple. You just got to believe in Jesus, and you need to ask him to forgive all your sins. And that's simple, right? And easy. But then as you begin to look a little bit deeper, you find that following Christ means doing things like loving your enemies, forgiving those who have wronged you, living different than the culture tells you to, giving sacrificially. That is not easy. So why do it? Why commit your life to something that is so difficult at times. Well, we find a compelling answer to these questions in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter in the Bible that was originally written by the Apostle Paul back in the first century to the church in Corinth. 
And there were a number of issues related to that specific church and what was going on there that Paul needed to write to and address. And those issues still speak to us today. And so he spends a lot of time addressing specific things, uh, smaller issues in the big scheme uh, of things. But then as he is getting ready to wrap things up near the end of his letter in the 15th chapter, he takes his eyes off the smaller things and he zooms out and he says, let's look at the big picture. We've been talking about all of this stuff. Now let's look at what's most important, what's the biggest thing is. He puts the focus back on the hope of the resurrection. And today as, as my time here, I have one more Sunday next week, as my time here it draws close to the end, I want to do the same thing. I want to zoom out and I want to take a look at the big picture of, of the hope of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 offers some of the, the best teaching, the most sustained, beautiful teaching on the resurrection that we find anywhere at any time. And it begins by telling us uh, that, that the, the resurrection is a historical reality that can be trusted, that it's not a fantasy, that it's not a dream, but it's real, and it actually happened. Verses 3 through 8 tell us about that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to all sorts of people. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. At one point, he appeared to 500 people all at once. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all of the apostles. Then last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. And I want you to know that when that happened, Paul went from somebody who was persecuting these people who were following Christ to somebody who was willing to be persecuted for his sake. And he invited his original readers. He said, you know, many of the people who saw him are still alive. You can go fact check for yourself. Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ talks about it this way. He, he says, you know, if you were to put the resurrection on trial and you were to call all of the eyewitnesses to come in for a testimony and you gave each of them 15 minutes to be cross-examined, he said that you would hear... 15 minutes each, you go all day, all night long, you would hear 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, almost five and a half straight days. And that's compelling. And then it's also helpful to note that even those who were trying to disprove the resurrection in the first century acknowledged that Jesus had died, that he had been placed in the grave, and that the tomb was empty on that Easter Sunday morning. So the evidence supports this great resurrection, and that's where Paul starts, and we can have hope in this. So um, we, we have great hope in all of that. Paul continues, and he reminds the people that we don't just have hope in the resurrection of Jesus, but we have hope in our own resurrection that is coming someday. And that is a hope where we will walk into new life with a new body, and we're going to be talking about that this morning. So now that I've set all this up, I want to read from the end of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this section begins with Paul. He's been talking about the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, our hope of resurrection, and then he says, listen. And that is a marker that what he's about to say, you want to sit up and take notice of what's about to be said. And so he says, Listen, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Now, did you notice how many times in that passage it said perishable or imperishable? Five. It said it five times in what we just read, and there were four other occurrences just before what we just read as well. So Paul wants us to know something about this perishable versus imperishable nature. Now, when we think of something that's perishable, we usually think of food that we put in the refrigerator to keep it from spoiling, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress for just a second, but I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me. And Reader's Digest back in May of last year had an art, a little feature that talked about some suggestions for perishable foods and how to make them last longer. And so they recommended you take veggies like celery and lettuce and broccoli, and you wrap them tightly in tinfoil, and you put them in the fridge, and that they will stay crisp for up to four weeks if you do that. So that was one recommendation. Some of you can try these at home later today. Um, If you have a problem with cookies drying out, they said put the cookies in a sealed airtight tin with a piece of bread, and that will help to keep them more moist for longer. Um, if, you, if you have that problem with the cheese, you know how the cut end of the cheese often gets dry and it becomes a problem? Well, they said just smear some butter on that and it will help it to stay soft and, and still be very usable. So there's some really helpful information for you um, to, to go back and try today. Now, this passage was not talking about perishable food, was it? It was talking about our bodies. You know, we don't like to talk about it much, but our current bodies are not going to last forever. Now, we have all sorts of methods for trying to preserve our bodies longer. We may not wrap ourselves in tinfoil and put ourselves in the fridge, but we do. uh, We lift and we tuck and we eat certain things and we exercise and we have lotions and medications and all sorts of things to try to delay this aging process as long as we possibly can. But the truth is, our current bodies are not eternal. As some retired athletes have been known to say, Father Time is undefeated. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us, though, that that is not the end of the story. In an instant, everything is going to change. In a flash, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, a reference to when Christ returns and ushers in a new age. Everything will change. Then all who put their faith in Christ, whether living or dead, will be ushered into this new life and this new reality. And Paul teaches that it's not just our souls 
that go to heaven, but we will have a resurrection body as well. And at first you might be thinking, that does not sound all that appealing to me. There are things about my current body that I do not like. But Paul goes on to say, our new bodies are going to be different. And he's just given this analogy of how you plant a seed in the ground and it, it becomes a new, uh, this new life. In order for that new life to come, the seed goes into the ground and it dies and then something new emerges. And he kind of builds upon that and he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 42 and 44, he says, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. And Paul says that it's a mystery how this all happens. But we know that it's a body that's not subject to death and decay. It will never grow old or wear out or perish. What an incredible promise. Are you tired of your aches and pains? Do you have things that aren't working properly? A day is coming when all of our pains will be gone. And Paul's not done. He has more to say about this. As he, as, and he, we get, I want to put another verse that we read already back up on the screen because he has more to say. He says, When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. I love that image of death being completely consumed, eaten, digested, never to be seen again. That's the victory that Christ has won, and we are just waiting for this day when it will all become a reality. You can really sense that Paul's passion is, is really beginning to continue. I mean, he said, listen, pay attention to what I'm about to say. And he's just building this, this argument, and then he quotes Hosea. He turns directly to death, and he says, I'm going to talk to you now. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He is taunting death. He is talking trash to death. Now, there's a player on my favorite football team who is known for talking trash. And uh, he's been known to walk up to other players after they have defeated them and say, you mad, bro? And, And other things like that. And I read this passage and I see Paul saying to death, you mad, bro? What's up? What you got? Now, while it's hard to make a biblical argument for taunting another human being, what we have here is Paul taunting death. And apparently it's okay because it's bringing glory to Christ and because death is this ultimate evil in our world that has been completely defeated. Paul can look at death and say, you have no power. The worst thing we can experience. And say, you have no power because of the victory that Christ has won. Yes, we will all experience death in our lifetime. The death of people that we love. And unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we will all die ourselves. But death doesn't have the final word. A glorious future awaits where sorrow and death will no longer reign. The victory has been won. And now with all of this in mind, this is what I really wanted to get to today. Let's put verse 58 back up on the screen. The last verse in this chapter. 
Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, there's this really good principle for reading scripture. When you come across the therefore, you got to find out what the therefore is there for. In this case, therefore basically means that what was just said is going to be what the next little statement is built upon. So the promises, the words, the statements that have just been said are going to inform what's about to come next, the instructions that are about to come next. And so Paul says, Therefore, on account of this glorious hope of the resurrection, my dear brothers and sisters, and I want to look at the three statements, the three instructions that he gives us after the therefore. Because I think that these are just as important for our church and Pastor Robles as they were for the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. They're especially important for all of you as you move forward together. First, Paul says, stand firm. In other words, stay grounded in God's word and grounded in God's truth. Be steadfast. Be consistent. Psalm 40 verse 2 says that God lifted me out of a slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Why would somebody who's been lifted out of a slimy pit and put on a solid foundation jump right back in to the mud and mire? Paul encourages the Corinthian church to stand firm, to keep their feet planted on the rock that is Christ. And I want to encourage you to do the exact same thing. Next, the next instruction is similar. He says, let nothing move you. Now, this was a really important uh, message for the Corinthian church if you consider the context of where they lived. Corinth was a wealthy city. It was known for its athletic competition, second only to Athens in that way. And they were this place where all these different people came through because it was a, a, a place where people, a crossroads for people traveling by water and by land. And so there were all these ideas and all these people who mixed together. As a place where people were coming and going, you can imagine it had a lot of vices. If you can imagine a vice, it was happening there. I wonder if anybody, as they, as they were coming in on their ship, looked over to their friend and said, hey, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. <laughs> because that would be consistent with the reputation that the town had. In such a culture, it would be easy for the church to just kind of assimilate and look exactly like the culture around them, to live like the world. But Paul said, don't do it. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. There's so many things that can shake us and move us from our faith, whether it's temptations or trials or change. They can all threaten to shake us. The only way that we can stand secure is if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And we look to him for strength, and we look to him for security and guidance. If we do that, we have nothing to fear. It's my prayer that you would do that in these coming months and years. The third instruction in this passage is always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. 
Another way to translate that would be to say, always abound in good works, or always give more than what is expected of you. Now, let me be clear. When we talk about good works, we're not saying that we are earning God's favor or earning our salvation through anything that we do. Good works are what we do in response to the victory that Christ has won in our world and in our lives. But I am praying fervently that you will continue the ministry that God has set before you, that you'll continue to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty, that together you will grow in the ministry that you're doing in our community and in our world. I'm praying God will move in your heart to be generous. A lot of people, when there's a transition in their church, they say, hey, it's time for me to step back. And so many of you before I know have stepped forward during transition, and I want to encourage you all to do that, to step forward and say, I'm going to give more of my time, my talent, my treasure. I'm going to be more invested because the church is all about the people that are in it and what God is doing in and through them. So as you move to, toward this exciting future, I encourage you to support your staff, support your elders, support your deacons so that this ministry doesn't miss a beat and that it continues to grow. May you abound in the work of the Lord. The last line in the chapter reminds us why we abound in the work of the Lord. It says, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Earlier in the chapter, we didn't read it, but Paul on numerous occasions talks about how if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain and everything that I'm doing is in vain. But then he comes back here and he says, I saw the resurrected Christ with my own two eyes. I know he's alive and I know that I am going to live forever with him. And so I know that no matter what you do, if it's done in the name of the Lord and God is behind it, it will not be in vain. There will be days when you feel like you're not getting anywhere. There will be days where you're frustrated and the, you don't see any results from your work. When you wonder if God, if you're making any difference at all in this world or if God's doing that through you. There will be days when serving the Lord feels toilsome and hard, but where you see no progress, God is still working behind the scenes doing things that you can't even possibly imagine. So I want you to keep in mind, nothing that you ever do in the name of the Lord will be in vain. I go back to my original question this morning. What makes some people live for Christ day after day, year after year? What helps them stand firm in the gospel without compromise, even when the culture around them is screaming for them to throw it all away? What keeps them firmly planted on the rock of Christ when life is tough or when you don't see any results from the work that you're doing? The thing that keeps people doing that is the hope that they have through the power of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection and of the resurrection he's promised to all who put their faith in him. It's so easy to take our eyes off this victory and to focus on the little stuff that's happening around us. But as you move forward, I want to encourage you to keep that hope at the forefront of your hearts and of your minds. Because in light of the resurrection and in light of that hope, we have so much to be thankful for. 
and so much that God can do. So I want to encourage you to stand firm. Let nothing move you. Continue to abound in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Please join me in prayer. Before I say anything, I just want to give you a minute to reflect in prayer, in silence with God, on these three things. How is God calling you to stand firm? How is he calling you to be immovable? And how is he calling you to abound in the work of the Lord? Think about those things right now in prayer.